This episode deals with a crime committed against a child. Please exercise self-care when choosing to listen. Between 1971 and 1973, three young girls aged between 10 and 11 were sexually assaulted and murdered in Rochester, a city in upstate New York, USA. Their names were Carmen Cologne, Wanda Walkowitz and Michelle Mayenza. It's important to hear these names as the girls are so often robbed of them when this series of murders is discussed. Although the three girls did not know each other, there are many similarities between them. They were all from poor communities and from single-parent families. They were all children who had been bullied at school or who were on the margins of their peer group. The three girls came from Catholic families and all were snatched in broad daylight and killed in a similar way. Finally, each girl's first name and surname began with the same letter of the alphabet, and their bodies were found in towns that started with the same corresponding initial. As a result, this series of killings is most commonly referred to as the double initial or the New York alphabet murders. Persons Unknown is a true crime podcast dedicated to unsolved murders and disappearances. The podcast is based in Wales, UK, and covers cases from Wales, the rest of the UK, and the wider world. New episodes are released every other Monday. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Persons Unknown Podcast. For a list of sources, please see the episode notes on your app. If you enjoy the podcast, please give us a review and you can help others get to hear about Persons Unknown by sharing and recommending on social media. Thank you so much for listening. Now back to this week's case. Carmen Cologne's story is tragically one of what might have been. If only someone had stopped their car to investigate what they witnessed on the side of the road on the night of November 16th, 1971. It was a particularly rainy evening and visibility was poor on Highway I-490. But even so, 38 people later came forward to say they saw a young girl with dark hair and naked from the waist down running along the hard shoulder or breakdown lane of the road. She seemed to be attempting to draw attention of passing motorists as she was flailing her arms about in a panicked way, but no one stopped. Witnesses also said they saw a car, later described as a dark-coloured Ford Pinto hatchback, slowly reverse along the hard shoulder When it stopped, a man got out and took the girl by her arm, leading her back to the car, before driving swiftly away. Why did no one stop to help Carmen? Was it because they were travelling too fast? 
did they try to account for what they saw with a simple and innocent explanation? Or were they simply too afraid to get involved? What we do know is that the first person came forward to the police with this information three days after this incident, by which time Carmen's body had been found. Carmen was born in Puerto Rico, but her family emigrated to the United States when she was small. She lived with her grandparents in the deprived Bull's Head neighbourhood in southwest Rochester, upstate New York. She was just ten at the time of her murder. Carmen struggled to fit into her new life in America and found school difficult. Her family spoke Spanish at home and Carmen found learning in another language challenging. It must have been overwhelming for one so young and there were reports that Carmen suffered from bad nightmares when she moved to the States. She was a vulnerable child dealing with some intense issues. Carmen was first reported missing when she failed to return home after being sent to a pharmacy to pick up a prescription for her mother. Apparently, this is something that Carmen was not normally permitted to do on her own, but she had pleaded with her mother to be allowed to go alone. The store owner remembers that she laughed empty-handed as the prescription was not yet ready. He said she told him in a hurried manner that she needed to go. Witnesses then saw Carmen getting into a car outside the store that appeared to be waiting for her. Her perceived readiness to get into the car led police to assume that Carmen knew the driver of the vehicle. A couple of teenage boys who were out riding their bikes found Carmen's body by the side of Stearns Road in Riga near Churchville. The traumatised boys originally thought the small body was a mannequin or a doll. Carmen had been sexually assaulted and strangled. The post-mortem also showed that Carmen had a fractured skull and broken vertebrae, which had occurred before the strangulation. Forensics also discovered small scratches made by fingernails all over her body. It was theorised that the viciousness and violence indicated an emotional, personal element to the murder, though it could also be the result of Carmen's brave attempt to escape her attacker. Her coat was found in a culvert around 100 metres away from her body, but her trousers were found 14 days later near the exit of the I-490 highway, close to the spot the motorist had seen her running along the side of the road. The murder shocked the local community, and Carmen's unaided appeals for help provoked their anger. There was a sense that Carmen had not only been the victim of an evil individual, but that she had been let down by the inertia of locals to get involved. An atmosphere of fear and anxiety accompanied the collective feelings of anger and injustice. Parents who were used to allowing their children to come and go with some degree of freedom around the neighbourhood were fearful of letting their young ones out of their sight. In response to the murder, a local group was formed of concerned citizens. The desire in the community to atone for the way Carmen was let down led two New York newspapers to offer a $2,000 reward 
which is raised to $6,000 with the private contributions from local companies. Police were convinced that answers to this investigation lay in the local community and began intensive inquiries in the vicinity. The theory that Carmen may have known her killer meant that the family was put under the microscope by the investigators and it wasn't long before a potential lead presented itself. Miguel Colon, or Uncle Miguel as he was known to Carmen, came to police attention almost straight away. There are different reports as to how Miguel Colon was related to Carmen and it seems the family dynamics were complicated. It appears Miguel was the brother of Carmen's father but when her parents divorced, Miguel and her mother started a relationship together. The focus on the family and the people who knew Carmen meant that Miguel Colon was interviewed by police in the first few days of the investigation. After the questioning, he left the country and promptly fled to Puerto Rico, where he originally hailed from. He was eventually brought back to New York State to face further questioning and claimed he had gone to Puerto Rico to visit a sick relative. Though there are accounts that he had mentioned to some people that he needed to leave town because he had, quote, done something wrong in Rochester, end quote. There were several pieces of circumstantial evidence that pointed towards Miguel Colon. He had a similar car to the one seen reversing on the side of the highway in pursuit of Carmen. When investigators inspected the car, it had been meticulously cleaned. One of Carmen's toy dolls was found in the car, though that in itself was not unusual since she regularly rode in the car with Miguel. Then, of course, there is the fact that he fled the country only four days after Carmen died. He also had no verifiable alibi for the night Carmen was murdered. There was no physical evidence linking him to the case, and police never arrested him or pursued a prosecution. Twenty years after Carmen's death, Miguel Colon took his own life with a gun after shooting both his wife and brother. They both survived to tell the tale. No one is quite sure why he did this. Almost a year and a half after Carmen's murder, another little girl from Rochester disappeared. Wanda Walkowitz was a redhead with a cheeky grin whose character and disposition seemed way beyond her 11 years. Life was hard for Wanda, and she was forced to grow up fast, following the death of her father. Wanda had a lot of responsibility within the household, and her family relied on her to do chores and small jobs around the home. Like Carmen, she was from a poor neighbourhood and lacked so many of the opportunities afforded to more affluent children of a similar age. On April 2nd, 1973, Wanda, like Carmen, was sent on an errand to a corner shop by her mother to pick up some grocery items. The weather was wet, as it was the night Carmen was abducted. Wanda was seen in the store, and eyewitnesses say they saw her walking along the short route back to her house at around 5.15pm. 
Classmates of Wanda say they saw her carrying several large bags of shopping and saw her prop the bags up against the fence in order to get a better grip. She never made it back home and Wanda's mother contacted the police three hours later to report her missing. The police took the report seriously and searches began straight away. The area near the shop and a local river where Wanda used to enjoy playing was searched but with no success. A tip line was set up and a witness reported seeing Wanda talking to the driver of a brown vehicle. Another person went so far as to say they saw a girl matching Wanda's description being coerced into a light-coloured Dodge Dart car by an unidentified man. The following morning, police discovered Wanda's body at a lay-by or rest stop off Route 104 in Webster. By the state of the body, it was theorised that Wanda had been thrown out of a moving vehicle. Like Carmen, she had been sexually assaulted and strangled. There were, however, some key differences. Wanda was found fully clothed and had been strangled from behind using a ligature. Carmen had been found undressed and was manually strangled from the front. Forensic examination also discovered numerous strands of white cat fur on Wanda's clothing, which was odd as her family did not own animals of any description. A key discovery at the autopsy was that Wanda had eaten custard shortly before she was killed. Custard was not one of the items she had purchased at the corner shop, and her mother said it was not something she ate at home or at school. As well as the eyewitness report about the girl being coerced into the Dodge Dart, another witness said they thought they saw Wanda looking upset in a Ford Pinto. Two girls similar in age to Wanda came forward to say that a man had attempted to get them into a car a couple of days before her murder. A man who had a previous arrest for a crime committed against a child was questioned and police even told the press to expect an arrest any day. This never happened and the man was released without charge. His name was never made public and his identity remains a mystery. Have you ever wondered what the band ACDC has to do with the missing town of Doveland, Wisconsin? Or who gets to decide what music plays at the end of the world? Or whether or not the largest unsolved art heist in history was actually a cover for a different crime? Maybe you haven't wondered about these things, but that's okay! On 31, we dive into strange, true, but often lesser-known stories and the interesting theories that surround them. From space to sports, lost media to internet lore, 31 has something for everyone. Find 31 on your favorite podcast platform and dive into the why behind the weird with me, Quinn Lovecraft. 31, the why behind the weird. Michelle Mayenza found life at school tough. She was a little overweight and was often bullied by some of the other children. Like Wanda, she was 11 years old. On November the 26th, 1973, Michelle and one of the children who bullied her 
had been told to stay behind after class. Why Michelle was asked to stay is unclear. As so often happens, perhaps Michelle was somehow seen as being part of the problem and to blame for the bullying she endured. According to her mother, Carolyn, she had arrived at the school to pick her up as usual, but was told by the teachers that Michelle had to stay longer. In an unusual decision for Carolyn, she decided to leave and let Michelle walk home on her own. Lots of children in the area were used to doing this, but Carolyn kept close tabs on Michelle. At around 3.20pm, Michelle's uncle, Phil Mienza, was driving home from his shift at the petrol station where he worked and noticed Michelle walking along the pavement in the direction of her home. He stopped to offer her a lift, but she declined and he drove off, leaving Michelle to continue her walk home. A classmate of Michelle later reported that shortly after this, she witnessed Michelle in the front seat of a car on Webster Avenue and Ackman Street. She did not recognise the man who was driving the car, but knew that it was not Michelle's father. The car Michelle was in actually almost hit the classmate as she was crossing the road, but it did not stop and sped off away from the scene. When Michelle failed to return home by 5.30pm, Carolyn contacted the police department to report her missing. At first, due to Michelle's history of being bullied, it was assumed that she had probably run away. But the murder of Wanda Walkowitz still loomed large in the community's consciousness, and police did start searching for Michelle that evening. The next morning, a local fire chief was driving in the town of Macedon when he noticed something unusual by the side of the road. He stopped the car and began to shake. He had found Michelle's dead body. Like Wanda, Michelle was found with her clothes on. The autopsy was undertaken by the same doctor who had carried out both Carmen's and Wanda's. The pathologist confirmed that Michelle had been sexually assaulted and strangled from behind. Remnants of a recently eaten cheeseburger were found in her stomach, again suggesting that the murderer had provided something to eat for his victim shortly before she was killed. White cat fur was again found on Michelle's clothing and fingerprints were also able to be taken from her body, though no match has ever been found. Semen was also found at the scene. Police asked for witnesses to come forward who may have seen something suspicious that afternoon. Along with the classmate who had said she was nearly hit by the car Michelle was in, several other people came forward to say they may have seen Michelle and the man between the time of her abduction and her murder. One witness was driving along Route 350 and came across a car on the side of the road with a flat tyre. A man was standing next to the car, holding a little girl by the wrist. The witness stopped and offered assistance, but the man pushed the girl behind his back and stared menacingly at the motorist. Some reports say that he angrily shook his fist at him. The motorist also thought that the man seemed to move himself to cover his car number plate. 
The good Samaritan did not linger long and soon left, but was able to write down part of the number plate. A suspect sketch was made of this man. He was white, around six feet tall, and had dark hair that covered his forehead and nearly went across his eyes. He also looked unshaven. He wore jeans, a plaid shirt with a padded jacket. Someone else contacted the police to say they had seen a girl matching Michelle's appearance, eating at a fast food diner with a man who was described as being white with dark hair and around six feet tall, very similar to the man by the car. This account tallies with the hamburger that was found in Michelle's stomach contents. The good Samaritan who had stopped to assist the man and the girl at the side of the road had the amazing good fortune to actually see the same car whilst on his usual daily commute. This time he was able to make a note of the entire number plate. He passed this on to police and they promptly chased up the lead. The car belonged to a local petty criminal from Lyons, New York. The man resembled the sketch of the suspect, but he argued he had nothing to do with the murder and provided an alibi. He claimed he was job hunting on the phone the whole day and his telephone records seemed to reflect this. However, there were other members of his family living in the same house, so anyone in the household could have made those calls. He was given a polygraph test and passed, and subsequently was ruled out as a suspect. It was following Michelle's death that the term double initial murders first began to be used to describe this series of crimes. It seems a local journalist from the Democrat and Chronicle first used this term in an article highlighting the connection that these three girls all had first names and surnames that began with the same initial, and also that each girl's body had been dumped in a town beginning with the corresponding initial. Carmen Cologne was found in Churchville, Wanda Walkowitz in Webster, and Michelle Mayenza in Macedon. Police were aware of the possible connections between the three murders, and the fact that all three girls were from vulnerable backgrounds did leave some investigators to think that the culprit may work within social services. This would make sense of the similarities between his victims and indicate that he had met them before, explaining why they felt comfortable to get into the car with him. One thing upon which the police did seem to come to a conclusion was that despite the newspaper headlines, the murderer was not choosing his victims based on their initials. For that to be the case, it would mean the killer would have needed to stalk and monitor his potential victims for weeks, waiting for a time to strike. There was no evidence of such behaviour. Investigators were, and indeed still are, divided as to whether one person is responsible for all three murders or whether there are two killers. Whilst there are similarities between all three cases, Carmen's murder has considerable differences from those of Wanda and Michelle. She was found undressed and her strangulation occurred from the front, which indicates a more personal and emotional murder. 
For that reason, many conclude that Carmen's murder was at the hands of a different person to that of Wanda and Michelle. There are other investigators who hold the theory that there is only one killer and say it is simply too much of a coincidence for all three not to be related. These investigators say the differences in Carmen's murder can be put down to the fact that she tried to escape and the murderer was angered and also hurried for fear of discovery. So let's take a look at the suspects in the double initial murders. The chief suspect in Carmen's murder is someone we have already mentioned, Uncle Miguel, or Miguel Colon. He ticks the box on so many levels, all of which have already been highlighted. If we do buy into the theory that Miguel killed Carmen, we can rule him out as a suspect in the other two murders, as he was no longer living in the area at the time. He also didn't resemble the sketch of the man seen with Michelle. A retired firefighter, Dennis Tamini, known as the Garage Rapist, is known to have carried out at least 14 rapes of teenage girls in the New York area between 1971 and 1973. Only a month after Carmen's murder, he attempted to force a girl into his car at gunpoint, but the girl screamed and he fled. He drove a similar car to the one described by witnesses and lived near the area where Michelle was last seen. In January 1974, only five weeks after Michelle's murder, Dennis Tamini killed himself after the police cornered him following another abduction attempt. He was literally caught in the act of sexually assaulting someone. When Tamini's car was searched, traces of white cat fur were discovered, similar to the type found on the clothing of Wanda and Michelle. He also kept his old firefighter's uniform in the car, and it has been theorised that he could have used this to gain the trust of the girls who may have seen him as a trusted authority figure. In 2007, Tamini's body was exhumed, and his DNA was compared to a sample taken from semen that was found at the Wanda Walkowitz murder scene. His DNA did not match. No DNA samples exist from the murders of Carmen or Michelle. Kenneth Bianchi and his cousin, Angelo Buono, infamously known as the Hillside Stranglers, were found guilty of the murders of 10 girls and women in California between 1977 and 1978. During the period when Carmen, Wanda and Michelle were killed, Kenneth Bianchi lived in Rochester, New York, and worked as an ice cream seller. He was known to have a similar car to the one seen by witnesses, and he is said to have worked near at least one of the murder scenes. Bianchi and Buono's modus operandi was to drive around and persuade girls and women to get into the car by showing fake police badges and pretending they were undercover officers. This could certainly have been effective at securing the trust of the three vulnerable girls. Bianchi always denied any involvement in this series of murders, and apparently his DNA was also not a match to the semen sample recovered from Wanda. 
according to Megan McDermott, writing in the Democrat and Chronicle in November 2013. Police say they have not completely ruled Bianchi out as a suspect, and they are unwilling to do this until they know all three killings were definitely committed by the same person. The police obviously have other evidence, perhaps circumstantial, potentially linking Bianchi to the death of Carmen or Michelle, which is persuasive enough not to discount. In 2011, Joseph Naso was arrested in Nevada for the murders of four women between 1973 and 1994. All four women were sex workers and had first names and surnames beginning with the same letter. They were Roxine Rogash, Pamela Parsons, Tracy Tafoya and Carmen Cologne. Yes, one of his victims shared a name with the first Rochester victim. This series of murders is also sometimes referred to as the Alphabet Killings, and Naso as the Alphabet Killer. He was convicted of these murders in 2013, but is suspected of many more. While searching his house, investigators found hundreds of photographs of unidentified girls and young women, some of whom appeared to be unconscious or even dead. They also found numerous notebooks and diaries containing vague references to possible murders with locations, first names or sometimes cryptic descriptions of women. His house also contained a back room with a bolted door that could only be opened from the outside. The door had a small hatch like the type found in prison cells to pass food to prisoners. This room's single window was the only one in the house that had bars. Naso resided in Rochester, New York during the period Carmen, Wanda and Michelle were killed. He worked as a photographer and would often travel between California and New York. One of his diary entries described the killing of a girl in Buffalo Woods, which could be a reference to upstate New York. His DNA was also tested against the sample found on Wanda. It was not a match. In October 2020, Montana law enforcement officers made an announcement that a 46-year-old cold case had finally been solved thanks to DNA technology. Five-year-old Siobhan McGuinness disappeared in February 1974 in Missoula, Montana, whilst out playing a short distance from her house. Her body was found two days later, near the Tura exit on the I-90. Tura is only a 10-minute car journey from Missoula. She had been murdered and sexually assaulted. She had been stabbed to death. Through familial DNA technology, the cold case was cracked and a prime suspect was identified. Familial DNA analysis is a technique used in which biological family members' DNA is used to provide investigative leads for identification of the unknown individual. In essence, DNA is put into a genealogical database in which members of the public have voluntarily uploaded their DNA. Familiar links are searched for and if, for example, a third cousin of the offender's DNA is found, a family tree is then constructed to pinpoint probable suspects. 
The suspect that the analysis provided was Richard William Davis, who had died aged 70 in 2012. He would have been 32 at the time of Siobhan's murder. Police are not sure what Davis was doing in Montana at the time. Police are sure that Davis has other victims, partly because he moved and travelled all over the country, making it easier to avoid detection. He lived in Arkansas from the late 1970s until his death, but before that lived in numerous places, including Pennsylvania and South Dakota, and most pertinent to the double initial murders, upstate New York. He also took long road trip holidays all over America, travelling as far as Alaska. Davis lived in upstate New York during the early 1970s. In 1973, police in Bath, New York, actually questioned Davis after the attempted abduction of a young girl. He approached an eight-year-old girl and tried to get her into his car, but she ran away back to her home. Unbelievably, Davis managed to convince police that it was all a misunderstanding. He claimed he just liked children. One police officer was suspicious of him and kept his name for monitoring. Unfortunately, it seems this information slipped through the net and was never followed up, as three years later, Davis was fined for picking up underage hitchhikers and taking them back to his house. There are a few other pieces of information that make him a good suspect for the double initial murders. Siobhan McGuinness was found dressed, but she had been sexually assaulted, just like Wanda Walkovitz and Michelle Mienza. He used a vehicle to pick up Siobhan and the other girl he attempted to abduct, just like the case in the New York murders. He was also known to carry a gun and a knife with him, which certainly would have helped to control an abductee. Siobhan was killed far from Davis's home. He obviously felt confident committing these heinous crimes far from his home and in unfamiliar places. He worked as a security guard during the early 70s whilst living in upstate New York. Perhaps his uniform enabled him to gain the trust of the young girls. Richard Davis visually fits the description of the suspect sketch. As a younger man, he had dark hair which did come down over his forehead, nearly to his eyes, and he was six feet tall. It seems Richard Davis was able to hide in plain sight with his obituary describing him as a born-again Christian. He often found employment working alongside children, including driving a school bus and as a security guard at a school for the deaf and blind. Richard Davis's family were shocked by these revelations, but were incredibly helpful to the investigation team, willingly giving DNA swabs and answering questions. Their world has been rocked as they come to terms with the fact someone they knew and loved was a child murderer. Law enforcement officers and cold case detectives from around the United States are looking into Richard William Davis for possible other victims and to see if he can be linked to unsolved cases from up to 60 years ago. One case is the 1973 disappearance of 24-year-old Barbara Alexovich from the town of Bath, New York. She has never been traced, 
and her disappearance is still unexplained. Davis is currently being looked into for this, but no evidence yet links him to the case. Police have obviously had Richard Davis's unidentified DNA for decades, but it is unclear if this has ever been tested against the DNA found at Wanda Walkowitz's crime scene. Even if a match was not found, until it can be proven that there is one killer, he surely warrants being looked into further for the double initial murders. The other main suspects in this case were mentioned earlier, one being the unidentified man who was questioned and then released following Wanda's murder, and the other the petty criminal who was looked into following Michelle's death. The former had a history of crimes against children, but was released and never charged. The latter provided an alibi about job hunting and passed a polygraph test. He was eliminated as a suspect. Very little is known about these two men, and their identities have not been released. What is striking in this case is the number of serial predators in the area at the time. The murders of Carmen Cologne, Wanda Walkowitz and Michelle Mayenza continue to affect Rochester to this day. The girls are still remembered and the hurt and pain caused 50 years ago still impacts the area. With the advancement of DNA technology, the season of justice is upon us, and the DNA sample taken from Wanda's murder holds the key to unlocking this mystery. There is still hope that this crime will be solved. If the perpetrator is alive, the hope is that he will be brought to account for his evil choices, and if he's deceased, that his secrets will be revealed so that answers can be provided for the family and relatives of Carmen, Wanda and Michelle.